The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 10th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, October 28th. And in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the formation of the new government in Italy, the U.S. midterm elections, and the state and future of the world economy. Let's start right away with the first series of editorials. We'll start our press review by talking about one of the most followed events from abroad and particularly in Europe, the formation of the new Italian government. Just this week, the new government took office, headed by the leader of Brothers of Italy, Giorgia Meloni. Italy's new political course is being followed with particular interest and concern abroad, as this is the first time that a far-right government is at the helm of one of the founding countries of the European Union. Let's start with another southern European country with Spain and the newspaper El País. For the editorial board, it is positive that Meloni stated in her speech to Parliament that Italy will remain aligned with Europe in the war unleashed by Russia against Ukraine. For Spanish journalists, however, it is on the domestic front that the leaders of Brothers of Italy showed her most ultra-conservative side. Meloni said she did not want to restrict current civil rights, but still attacked illegal immigration, announced she would propose a naval blockade to the EU. In addition, she expressed her willingness to want to change the Italian constitution in a presidential system, an idea that arouses strong perplexity in those who fear it means opening the door to authoritarianism. As we said earlier, Italy is now in the spotlight since the editorial board concludes its actions from now on could have an influence on the European electoral map. From Southern Europe, let us move to the geographical center of Europe and to the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. For the paper's Italy correspondent Oliver Meller, a political experiment is underway. A mixture of nationalism and technocracy. Meloni has appointed five technicians among her ministers, whose purpose should be to reassure foreign countries' fears about Italy's future. But among them, Mailer notes, of the 24 ministers, 11 were part of Berlusconi's government of 2008. The one replaced by Mario Monti in 2011, as it had led the country to economic collapse. Arguably, however, the two ministries of most interest to foreign countries are economy and finance and foreign affairs. In this case, Meloni made the best possible choice, with Giorgetta at economy, probably the most technocratic among the political profiles, and Tajani at foreign affairs, strongly pro-Europe. It could have been much worse. There is, however, domestic politics to cause concern with ultra-Catholic Eugenia Rutella at the Ministry of the Family, now also called Off the Birth Rate. Rutella is inspired by the Polish model and is against anything that deviates from Christian dogma, abortion, gay marriage and euthanasia. The far right is on the rise throughout Europe, the columnist concludes, and Giorgia Meloni is its new star. To conclude, we go right to Italy to the newspaper La Repubblica. Columnist Ariana Farinelli delves right into the issue of the right to abortion. Farinelli recalls that before she was appointed minister, Rocella declared on television 
that in her view abortion was not a right. Is abortion a right or not? The journalist asks. And if so, why is it important that it be considered as such at the national and international level? Constitutional law professor Marilisa Mico explains that the Italian law regulating abortion has constitutionally bound content. It means that it therefore refers to some articles of the Italian constitution that enshrine the right to health and the inviolability of human rights. At the international level, on the other hand, the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics states that reproductive autonomy, including access to safe abortion services, is a fundamental and non-negotiable human right of every woman. Furthermore, both the European Parliament and the United Nations recognize that denying abortion is a restriction on women's procreative freedom. In conclusion, therefore, abortion is an inalienable right recognized by the Italian constitution and international law. From Europe, we broaden our gaze to the rest of the world. The subject of the next series of editorials comes from across the ocean, the US midterm elections, which will be held on November 8th. The vote will renew the House and the Senate. The first comment on the subject comes from British newspaper The Financial Times. The editors note that polls suggest that the Democratic Party of incumbent President Joe Biden will lose one or both chambers, but that will not assure the Republican Party the White House in 2024. Biden's domestic agenda could suffer a setback, however, with one or both chambers controlled by Republicans. Republicans will neutralize the Capitol Hill siege investigation and launch new ones on democratic scandals, real or imagined. And more worrying for Europe, the consensus on support for Ukraine may also falter. While not assuring the presidency to Republicans in 2024, the November election result could still help Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, win the Republican nomination again and run in 2024. If candidates bearing the former president's stamp perform well, his already strong chances of winning the Republican nomination in 2024 will increase. If not, the British reporters point out in closing, donors and the Republicans' apparatus, if not the base, will look for an alternative. Back on dry land with the next editorial, we go to Germany to the weekly Die Zeit. According to the paper's German correspondent, Rike Havertz, what awaits the United States will be one of the most polarized votes in its history. The polarization is so strong that Democrats see Republicans as the biggest threat to democracy and vice versa. The country's democratic hold and the election outcome for Havertz, however, is played on the economic level. For Americans, in fact, threatened democracy is something very abstract, especially when due to rising prices of consumer goods, especially gasoline, many families are experiencing economic hardship. The Democratic Party, if it hopes to win, must therefore combine the moral message with a pragmatic program focused on social security and health insurance emphasizing the Republicans' demand for spending cuts in these areas. These congressional elections are about the future of democracy, the reporter concludes. The more deniers of the 2020 election outcome are elected, the more fragile the U.S. political system becomes. The last editorial on the U.S. elections takes us instead to Italy in the newspaper La Repubblica. For journalist Martha Dasu, the vote will have implications relevant not only for the White House, with the Joe Biden weaker, 
but also for the American approach to the war in Ukraine. So far, the US has contributed 52 billion euros to the Ukrainian cause, while the allocations of all the European countries and the Brussels institutions produce a much smaller amount, 29 billion euros or so. Should the Republicans win the House or Senate, the US contribution to the war could be scaled back. Republicans are quite divided internally on the issue. Some important names in the party believe that it is in the US's interest to support Ukraine's resistance until Moscow withdraws, also to send a message to China. That Washington will not stand idly by in the events of a crisis over Taiwan. For the other wing of the Republican Party close to Donald Trump, taxpayer money should instead be spent first and foremost on Americans themselves. The most likely scenario is that Republican lawmakers will propose reducing aid to Kiev but continuing to support it, as support for Kiev is met with favor from a large part of the public. Any Republican victory, however, would help explain why the Kremlin's are thinks time still plays in his favor, despite military difficulties on the ground and the impact of sanctions. On the future of Ukraine, Dasu concludes, the future of the relationship between Europe and the United States is also at stake. The last section of the podcast touches on one of the most debated topics recently, partly because of the energy crisis and rising prices the state of the world economy. The geopolitical aspect of the economy is the focus of the first editorial in this third part of the podcast, and it comes from the French newspaper Les Echos. Can we really do without China? Asked the columnist Ludovic Subran. During his speech, the Chinese president also sadly reminded us that his country will never give up the use of force to reunite Taiwan, sending a clear message to the United States, casting the shadow of a new Sino-American rivalry over the US elections. In Europe, we are already preparing to choose between West and East, between Atlanticism and new global trade routes, between access to the dollar and access to billions of Asian consumers, between values and growth. Although the share of the international trade in China's growth has declined over the past decade, the Chinese market remains pivotal in the world economy, and the Chinese consumer remains promising for many companies. In the event of a crisis in Taiwan, doing without China would cost the US 1.3% of GDP and Europe 0.5% compared to China's 0.3%. Doing without China thus seems almost impossible, being, unlike Russia, highly integrated into the international market system. In addition, Subran concludes, we cannot forget the other great crisis of our time, climate change. The technological and climate challenges we face require close and global collaboration. The next article takes us back to Southern Europe in the Spanish newspaper El País. Journalist Wolfgang Munchow tries to imagine how the world economic model might change. There was a time not so long ago when each country had its place in the world economy. And from the 1990s until the pandemic, it was mostly stable. But after Brexit, the war and the pandemic, the system definitely broke down. In the United Kingdom, Brexit brought political chaos because the economic system remained the same as before, leaving the single market. Germany counted on cheap Russian energy and in technical specialization and integration into global supply chains. Russia, however the war goes, will no longer sell the same amounts of energy to Europe. China is discovering that its large reserves of dollars and euros have made it politically dependent on the United States and the EU. 
The US relied on its economic power for foreign imports, a power that is disappearing. The whole world therefore needs a new economic model, but not from a macroeconomic point of view. It depends on how each country will specialize. Economic model change is not new in history. Successful examples of radical model changes are Japan and Germany after World War II. But it took a catastrophic event to trigger the change. Muncho, in closing, predicts the success of the United States in this regard. The return of the United Kingdom to the single market and that Russia will become a satellite country of the Chinese giant. Uncertainty remains in the case of China and Germany. The future of the Eurasian continent will largely depend on how these two countries adapt. Today's last article takes us back north and to the Belgian newspaper La Livre. For Professor Mikhail Petitjon, as soon as a financial crisis occurs, it is fashionable to naively cry financial capitalism. To get out of this manichaeism shouldn't we consider the role that politics plays in the emergence of financial crises, wonders Petitjon, and he traces three major economic crises of recent years. First, that of 2008. According to the professor, the US government is partly responsible for the crisis. Its magnitude would never have been what we have known without the blank check from the US government, which underwrote the absence of basic guarantees in the granting of mortgages while offering its implicit bailout guarantee to the federal agencies selling those mortgages around the world. Then the Greek debt crisis. The southern European country should never have entered the euro. If policymakers had adhered to the economic criteria they themselves had set a decade earlier. Finally, we come to the recent British economic crisis and its pension funds. The culprit in this case would have been having enacted a stimulus budget without any serious funding at a time of high inflation in complete opposition to the monetary policy currently being pursued by the Bank of England. In short, Petit Jean concludes, it is often policy decisions that exacerbate economic crises for which everyone pays the price. And that brings us to the end of the 10th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you so much for following us and we look forward to seeing you again next Friday with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rago. See you next week.